Our passage is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52, although the bulletin says through 42. The title of the sermon this week is Gethsemane, and we'll be looking at the events that transpired in the garden there on the side of the Mount of Olives in the place called Gethsemane before we come to this dark time in the life of of Jesus. Let's pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, would sustain us in the preaching and hearing. Let's pray. Holy God, we come in need again. We depend on you through every element of our service. We lean on Jesus and we live by the Spirit. And so now we ask that your Spirit would help us as we hear this word to understand it and to apply it. Because on our own, we are spiritually weak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The disciples had just promised that they would not leave Jesus. Last week, the disciples promised that even if they had to die with Jesus, they would not forsake him. Peter leading that charge. And here we find them falling away. 
And this passage is the culmination of a lot of things we expect, not just that particular failure on the part of the disciples, which Jesus had said would happen. It's a culmination of other things. This is the beginning action of Jesus' arrest and his trials and his crucifixion, his last day before his death. And it's, it's all things that he's predicted throughout the book. So here we come to it. And all the way back in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it was promised that the suffering servant would be numbered among the transgressors. And here Jesus was taken as a robber, as a transgressor, as a criminal, in the way that they came as a mob to arrest him. And there are other things, but we we see that these things point to the plan of redemption's core. This is the center of God's work of redemption and his covenant with his people. It's Jesus' death on the cross, his being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Mark tells us here they've moved to Gethsemane. It literally means oil press. That word is only used here and in Matthew's telling of this same story. It's called the Garden by Luke, and it's called the Mount of Olives, more generally by John. And it was a place that Jesus frequently went to, so Judas knew where to find him with his disciples when he came with the mob to betray him. And this time in the garden before the mob comes is almost like the calm before the storm. The treachery seems to, there's no movement on the treachery. There's no action against Jesus right now. It's him in the quiet of the garden with sleeping disciples in the presence of his father. And while it's a calm in the plot, this might be the most tumultuous evening in the entire life of our Savior. Certainly up to this point. Because this evening he wrestles between his desires as a real fully human man in the will of his father. And so as we go through this passage, we'll talk about in this order, Jesus's distress, Jesus's prayer, the disciples' heavy eyes, and the arrest and the abandonment. Jesus's distress, Jesus's prayer, the disciples' heavy eyes, and then the arrest and abandonment. Jesus says of his distress in verses 33 through 35, he's he's talking about his soul. That that word for soul means his, his being, his life, his mind, his heart. When you think of who a person is as a person, Jesus is saying his being is distressed. He says, greatly distressed in verse 33. He's, this, this implies some alarm, and, and he's greatly troubled. This is a heavy burden, a stress of the mind. Have you ever felt a burden on your heart and on your mind, and you just can't shake it, and it keeps you up at night? That's beginning to understand what Christ is feeling here. Why so much weight on Jesus if if he knows the plan, if he knows what this has been all about? Maybe here in this moment, the Father has shown him how immediate and how specific the death is going to be. He understands that his end is coming. Of course, we know that's not the final end, but still that death, brutal to face. And Jesus is, in many senses, fulfilling, with a Christological fulfillment, uh, a lot of the Psalms, the Psalms that cry out to God. I think of Psalm 6, 
which says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And then a few verses later, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And also in Psalm 31, it reads, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Jesus is feeling the sorrow, the dark places of the soul that the psalmists mentioned. Jesus says he is very sorrowful even to death in verse 34. Sorrowful even to death. Intensely sad. He's grieved all around because this prospect of death is all that he can see before him. He fell on the ground. And in this falling on the ground, he was not giving up. Because although you and I would only see that death that stands before us, Jesus fell on the ground, not in surrender to fate, but in surrender to his Father's will. He fell down in worship before his Father, completely surrendering, completely submitting to the will of the Father. And he prayed. We'll get to the prayer in just a moment. It's been said that many people have faced death with more composure and dignity than Jesus did in this moment. Many have. But no one has died facing what Jesus faced. Because what Jesus was facing was not simply that his blood would be spilled. He was facing the wrath that is due for sin. The weight that he was about to bear Nobody understands. He's already said he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not just a simple death. This is a death as a ransom for many to buy many and to appease the wrath due for the sins of many. And again, Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And so his despair and his distress And his grief unto death is first and foremost about the thought of the Father forsaking him and pouring out upon him, not his countenance of light and his countenance of blessing, but pouring out his wrath for the weight of the entire world's offense against him. If you're in a dark spot, not now, but maybe ever, so maybe I should not say if you find yourself in a dark dark spot, when you find yourself in a place of distress. Jesus knows. Jesus understands your sorrow, your troubled soul. And he understands distress itself better than anyone else. He knows what it is to despair unto death. And he has contemplated and faced head on the cost of all of our sins. You know that when you make wrong choices, you face consequences. Uh, There are If everyone knew all your your sins, there would be um, burdens of repayment and punishment that you could never bear. It's a terrifying thought. That's one of those things that everybody fears, that that people would figure out what you've done. And, And you know that each one of your sins declares you unworthy of the Father's closeness and unworthy of the Father's favor. Now imagine the weight of countless sins in all the world and all of history placed upon one person. Upon that one man, Jesus, 
That one man bore the wrath of his father that was due for each and every one of those sins. Jesus saw the weight and the consequence of your sin and he chose to take it for you. He chose to take it out of a deep eternal love beyond anything else that we've ever encountered when we speak of love. He despaired for your sin and your death on his shoulders so that you can rejoice in life on his shoulders. And in his distress, Jesus doesn't surrender, as I said, just to fate. He doesn't just give up and say, well, this is the end. He turns to his father. And so in his distress, we see Jesus pray. We find this in verses 35 and 36. He comes pleading to the father. And oftentimes we're, we're discouraged. Oh, you shouldn't just go to God and pray when things are hard. You should go to God when things are hard. Sure, not just when things are hard, but go to God when things are hard. Pray to God when things are difficult. Jesus runs to his father in his distress and falls down on the ground before his father. And he prays in his prayer that the hour might pass from him. The hour is referring to his suffering. And we see in the end of this passage here in verse 41, the hour has come as the arrest is at hand. This hour, Jesus says, Please, if it's possible, let this pass from me. In his full humanity, Jesus doesn't want to suffer and die. Jesus does not want to suffer and die and to face this. It is a heavy burden to bear. You must remember he's not some sort of superhuman blend of humanity and deity. He is fully human and as such, he does not desire to face his death and more to face the wrath of his father for for sin, for our sin. And as he does not want to do this, he brings his request to the father and he cries out to the father. All things are possible for you in verse 36. And here, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who has made himself nothing, he acknowledges that the authority in this situation to proceed is the father's. Jesus acknowledges that it is the father's will to crush this one, to save the many. He knows that even in the pain and the suffering, yes, even in the death, the Father's will, though, will not allow Jesus to succumb to death and evil in the end. He does know that promise because he has said throughout the book that he will rise. And he says, remove this cup from me in verse 36. He's wrestling. He's mentioned the cup of difficulty earlier and he asked the disciples, can you also drink this cup? It's a difficult cup to bear. What then is his heart towards submitting to the will of the Father? We have to remember, Jesus isn't shedding all emotion in this moment. He's not becoming an emotionless, stoic, robotic person. He's not dissociating his heart from his actions. He's not, this is not a passionless surrender to the forces that be. We see his humanness no clearer than right here. He was pleading out of a distressed struggle between his heart, his life, his soul, his mind, and the will of the Father. And in so doing, he stands in the place of you and me, of every human being who has wrestled with our own sinful heart against the will of the Father and failed. And while Israel failed, Jesus, the new head of Israel, did not fail. He succeeded. And while we, the new Israel, fail, Our head, Jesus, has has not failed. He has submitted perfectly to the Father. 
and his submission to the Father is counted as ours. Listen to how Marx describes Jesus' success. And to the world, this is not success. But to us who understand what Christ is doing, this is success. Verse 36, Jesus says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. He willfully decides to do the Father's will. He calls him Abba, Father. One, uh, one scholar puts it this way, Abba, the word Abba, recollects Jesus' original Aramaic, and it displays an intimacy, a boldness, and a simplicity in, an, in his address to God. As Jesus calls him Abba, he's saying he consciously knows that he is God. He is one with the Father, and he goes to Abba, And he submits to the one who he knows has all good things in line and in his plan. Jesus is God the Son, the only Son of God who is one with the Father, who is the Word in the beginning with God and was God who made all things. And as Jesus suffered in this moment and submitted himself to the Father, so do you and I in that moment. As Jesus was submitting his will to the Father's will, so our wills are submitted to the will of the Father. Not because we choose today all the time to submit our wills to God, but because Jesus has done it on our behalf. Only Jesus' suffering is effective and produces salvation. Jesus earns for us the right to be called sons of God and the right for us to call the Father Abba as well. To have that closeness to him. Jesus submitted himself to the plan that was before him, the plan that he agreed to before the foundation of the world, the plan that we know as the covenant of redemption. And his sights, Jesus' sights were set on the redemptive plan that was bigger than his human longings, even against his human longings. I get distressed when my plans don't go my way. I act like a child in my heart when I think I deserve something and don't get it. I too often refuse to let go of my plan, and so I pout when it's taken from me. Contrast that with Jesus, who chose to willfully surrender his desires and his will to the greater will, to the will of the Father. And he cried out to God in this moment, and God strengthened him to stand up under the greatest injustice ever done in the history of the world. Hebrews 5 speaks of Jesus's prayers here. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9, it says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In this moment, Jesus, who had made himself nothing, submitted himself to the Father, and as the Son of God, obeyed. And as the heir of all the world, suffered. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God never removes his face from you and from me. When we're wrestling with our desires and and we, we get distressed over our plans falling through, God never removes his face from his children because Jesus took the forsaking of his father for us. 
He wrestled truly and he submitted deeply. And so he is our source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The point of this is Jesus has suffered the deepest of despair as a man. And he exercised perfect faith in the Father amidst it. The weight of temptation to do one selfish thing did not break him. In other words, he humbled himself, even his loves, even his longings. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, under the will of the Father. This proves to us that Jesus knows far more about temptation than you and I do. Think of this this, uh, illustration. Imagine a diving board. And for some reason, a crane is lowering a really heavy weight onto it. So, the, cr- the crane slowly lowers this, this massive weight onto the end of the diving board. And as soon as the weight touches the diving board, the board is under the pressure of maybe a few pounds. And as more and more weight is lowered onto the diving board, it bends and bends and bends until the point where it snaps. But there's still more weight that could have been put on the diving board. The diving board never actually felt the full weight because it broke before the full weight rested on it. You and I, when we face temptation and we break under the weight of temptation, we have not felt its full weight. Jesus faced the temptation. Think of Satan in the wilderness. Think here of his temptation to run. But he stood up. He bore the full weight of what was put against him and did not break because he stood in submission to the will of the Father and was strengthened by his Father in it. And he bore that full weight for you and for me to the very end because you know we can't. We prove that to ourselves every day. And so then we must look to him, the one who did stand up under this temptation and look to his victorious fight as the great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and was tempted as we see in this scene, yet was without sin. And even in the suffering, Jesus offers himself to those who trust in him. Remember that he offered the bread and the cup, and here his cup is offered to those who will take it. Will you take Jesus' suffering on your behalf? Well, did the disciples. How do they respond in this? Well, we see they have heavy eyes. In fact, very heavy eyes. Jesus had told the eight disciples to sit while Jesus prayed, and then he told Peter, James, and John, uh, who who he brought with him, to remain here and watch, and further instructed them to watch and pray. They're supposed to be alert here in the garden. They're supposed to keep their eyes open, and not just in a physical sense, in a spiritual way too, to be alert, to be mindful, so that they might not fall into temptation. What kind of temptation do they face in this moment? Well, remember that just prior, they had all declared that they would not forsake Jesus, that they would stand with him unto death. But the imminent arrest is coming and they don't seem to have prepared themselves in any way. The temptation to flee is about to come. So Jesus says, watch and pray. The only way you're going to be able to resist is to watch and to pray, to be alert. You may remember this sounds a lot like Jesus' command to stay awake earlier in Mark 13 when he says the master of the house is going to return on a day that no one knows and stay awake lest he return and find you sleeping. And what did Jesus do but find them sleeping? 
And this is not a request to be alert just now or when you think the end might come or this, this, this is a perpetual alertness. This is the call of the Christian to always be ready, to always be resisting temptation. But Jesus understands that the temptation is difficult because he says the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Literally, the flesh is without strength. So you can't stand watch. You can't be spiritually alert by trusting your flesh. You can't be alert by depending on yourself. Strength is found in the spirit. And the way to be dependent on God's spirit is largely by prayer. The way to resist temptation is by holding on to the truth of God's word. And the way to stay awake is to keep watch on your soul and on your actions and to pray. You know that when you pray, you are changed far more than anything else is changed. Because your will is submitted to the fathers more and more as you pray, just like Jesus just demonstrated. That he wrestled with the father and submitted his will to the father in his prayers. And just as Jesus had charged them to stay awake and to keep watch because no one knows when the end is, Jesus is telling them, stay awake, pray, and be alert, be diligent. Yet he found them asleep. And then he speaks specifically to Peter. And he doesn't call him Peter, which means rock. He calls him Simon in this instance. In other words, you're not, you're not being a rock right now. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Peter had just said, if I must die with you, I will not forsake you. And he cannot, in the first hour of trial, stay awake. So Jesus returns to pray. And he prays the same prayer that he had prayed before. And then he comes back to the disciples the, disciples the second time. And what does he find this time? He finds them with very heavy eyes. This is first and foremost a spiritual sleepiness. Like the blind man who was partially healed and then he saw people that looked like trees walking around. So the disciples can see in part, but their sight is not full yet. They're still not spiritually there. Only once they see the resurrected Jesus will their eyes no longer be heavy. And then they become alert and awake and faithful as we read about in their, their faithfulness in many of the remain, much of the remainder of the New Testament. But Jesus returns to pray again and then returns to the disciples a third time and they have failed again, certainly foreshadowing the threefold denial of Peter that is coming soon. And although they failed to keep watch three times in the garden, we can't forget that it was Jesus who successfully resisted temptation in the wilderness three times against Satan. And there was another time when Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a mountain with him and at that time, it was the transfiguration, and they didn't know what to say. And they also hear, we're told in verse 40, that they didn't know what to answer Jesus. What do you say? And Jesus says, that's enough. It's, it's a, it says in the ESV, it is enough. Other translations translate it with a bit more exasperation. Like, okay, we're done. That's, that's enough. He says, the hour has come. This very hour that he had prayed would pass. He says, the hour has come and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The disciples, amidst all that was going on, the spiritual turmoil that was going on, even though it seemed like a calm plot in the garden, not much action going on, 
visibly. The depths of the spiritual struggle they could not see. They were still living in the flesh, asleep to the spiritual reality of suffering and of redemption that was happening right before them. And as the arrest came, they were more ashamed of the suffering servant and of his arrest. And they failed to see the loving work of salvation playing out before their very eyes. But we have to notice how this does not phase Jesus. He continued on. He endured what was set before him, steadfast to save even sinners like these because he died for us even while we were still sinners. So Jesus, knowing that he was purchasing his people, purchasing all that the Father had given to him, he willfully proceeds for helpless, unable, flesh-wrestling sinners like the disciples and like us. So then Mark brings us to the point of the arrest. Here the arrest begins. This begins the greatest injustice in all of history. This begins the events to which Jesus has been building as he has marched his way, so to speak, toward Jerusalem to the place where he knew he would die. And here it comes. The mob comes ready to take him by force. Verse 43 says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This is how they would capture a criminal. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, we last heard from them at the beginning of chapter 14, and they had a plot to arrest him by stealth and kill him, a plot that was fast-forwarded by Judas's involvement. And here comes their delegation with swords as a mob. And you'll notice in this whole paragraph, there are only two names. Only two people are named, Jesus and Judas. The focus becomes the betrayal, the kiss, the mockery that is involved in this interaction. This kiss is supposed to be an act of love. It's a sign of affection and respect, and it was used for hate. And Judas calls Jesus rabbi, which means my great one. He didn't mean an ounce of that. Jesus also will soon be called King of the Jews. That is very much in line with what Judas calls him in this moment. And so in that vein, Jesus' mockery has begun. Then he is taken into the hands of betrayers, a group of weapon bearers of a size enough. Judas had told them, make sure that you lead him out under guard. So it was a big enough group that they could lead him away under guard, but it was small enough not to cause too much commotion on the festival night because you remember the Sanhedrin didn't want to stir up too much, uh, too much of a riot among the people. And so Jesus asks, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And indeed, he has been now numbered with the transgressors in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus says, you had plenty of opportunities in the temple. But you didn't do it then, so you're doing it now under cover of night as cowards. And so the disciples wake up, if you were, if you will, from, from their, their slumbering during the prayer, and they, they see the suffering servant under arrest. You think at this moment they would get it, and they would put it all together, and they would run to him as the one who will take on their transgressions. Do they do that? Do they trust him? And do they stand with him? And do they die with him? Do they remember his promise that he would die and rise again? Do they remember the call to deny themselves and to follow him? Do they remember the cup that they had just shared with him, not even a few hours ago? 
No, the sheep in this moment were scattered. Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Just as he had said earlier, let the scriptures be fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And here the scriptures are fulfilled and they all left him and fled. We see in verse 50. Jesus is facing his mockery and his trial and his death alone without a single disciple by his side. And with the wrath of the father about to be poured out upon him. There are curious couple verses here that um, now that I think of it, I think I forgot to read as we were reading through the passage earlier on. Let's read these verses 51 and 52. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In such haste and in such a longing to be gone from the striking of the shepherd and the shame associated with that, he was willing to take on the shame of nakedness rather than the shame of association with his teacher under arrest. There are a handful of theories about who this might be. Some people think it's Mark himself describing his perspective of what happened that night. Some people think it might have been the young man at the empty tomb, but we don't know who it is. Truth is, it's you and me. It's an invitation for us to consider how quick are we going to be to abandon Jesus too when the world comes to arrest him. When the world comes with clubs and swords to arrest him and to take him away and to call him a criminal and to use all power against our Savior, will we then flee as well? Will we say, oh, I'm not associated with him. I don't know him. Would we rather take on the shame of nakedness than the shame of association with this Savior? Jesus was the most extremely mistreated person in all of history. And he continued to move forward to redeem. Without a single disciple to stand with him, he endured the pain. For faithless, scattering sheep like us, he remains the faithful shepherd. How ready are we to stand with Jesus or how ready are we to run? Is our allegiance actually to something else? Have we failed to see that he is enough and that in his pleading before the Father and submitting his will to the Father, we too can submit ourselves to the Father's will. We too can have the Father hold us up in the strength of Christ as we face temptations and as we face the questions and the attacks of the world. Wake up, see the redemption that Jesus has done by his suffering and be strengthened by it. Amos chapter 2 says this, And he who is stout of heart, even the mighty, he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And Romans 3 says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. When we turn aside from our Savior, He remains faithful. And He endures to the end to save wayward sheep like us. I'm not telling you to stand up strong today so that you might earn God's favor. God's favor has been earned for you by Christ enduring the cross for you. But now you can stand in his strength. And now you can stand against all forces of evil. You don't have to succumb to the to this temptations of the flesh because we live in the spirit 
You're not supposed to be strong so you can kill the devil because Jesus has already done that. Your job is to trust in and to fall onto and to be found in and to be weak in the one who wrestled through despair and distress, who trusted perfectly in the Father and who is strong on behalf of you, of all those who trust in him. Look to him. Don't try to fix yourself. Don't try to make yourself a better person thinking that that will earn your salvation. Jesus has earned it. Rest in what he's done. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us this truth in your word. We thank you that you sent your Son and poured out the wrath that was due to us upon him so that we might receive your favor and your countenance upon us in blessing. We pray that we would look nowhere else for purpose, for acceptance, for truth, for identity, but in Jesus alone, where we receive your embrace and your welcome and the inheritance of sons. We thank you for Jesus, for his work alone, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.